Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 7th of December, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us uh, eastern approaches from the Netherlands. And we're going to kick off with, uh, with Brexit because, of course, uh, all the UK negotiators, or at least some of them, have gone to Brussels uh, for the uh, UK-EU negotiations, continuation of. Barnier left London on Friday uh, and uh, is, uh, is back in Brussels, uh, as are, uh, well, David Frost, as you can see on screen there, was arriving uh, at Brussels airport um, for, uh, for this event, uh, if we can call it an event. Now, the question is, why is this going on? And uh, Brian, I think, uh, and Alex, I'm not certain that everybody really uh, is quite familiar with why this is going on, because everybody, or at least most people, have been told that, uh, that uh, has been told that uh, Brexit is over, uh, that we have left the country and so on, uh, left the, the, uh, the EU and so on. Um, so uh, I do apologise, my mic is off, so I'm just going to fix that. Um, just give me one second. If I can do that quickly. Apologise for this. There we go. So that should be on again now. So I apologise that. Uh, so why why is this negotiation happening at all? Because uh, we were supposed to have left in uh, in December. Uh, well, the truth is, of course, uh, that was only part of the Brexit uh, process. Uh, what happened was that uh, we had a divorce. Uh, and now we're having a remarriage of some kind. Um, and uh, that remarriage, that future relationship is still, that deal is still to be done. Now, if you're looking at the mainstream press, uh, what will you see? You'll see mainly uh, that uh, it's about trade, um, but of course it goes much beyond that. So let's just remind ourselves what the framework is for this negotiation. Uh, there is an economic partnership on the left-hand side of this graphic. This is the EU's graphic, of course, not the UK's. But nonetheless, this is the framework that's being used for the negotiations. Um, and uh, well, everything that we'll see in the press is about a level playing field on trade. It's about fisheries and particularly fisheries being the so-called sticking point at the moment. Um, but trade and goods, customs, uh, services and investment, and of course, the Northern Irish border is included in that as well. But this is only a very small part, or at least half at most, of what is actually being negotiated. And it did amuse me, Brian, that in the BBC coverage of this on the BBC website this morning, uh, they said uh, uh, that trade and other matters are being discussed without ever defining what the other matters are. Well, of course, they're very frightened of uh, talking about EU, the ongoing EU defence union. Uh, indeed, BBC which of course is not is, going to mention that at all. Is what this side is all about, the security partnership, which isn't just about... Uh, foreign security and defence policy, that's a large part of it. Uh, it includes sanctions, it includes uh, police and judicial cooperation, it includes data exchange, cooperation between law enforcement authorities, anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing, uh, intelligence exchanges, uh, defence capabilities, space development uh, and, and so on. So there's quite a lot beyond the trade deal uh, that's, uh, that's being negotiated here. And look, I'm just going to remind everybody that if you think back to when David Cameron was Prime Minister and uh, he announced the uh, referendum in 2016, well, the first half of that year, he toured around the, uh, the European Union and met all the various European Union heads of state and ended up uh, with this document here uh, called The Best of Both Worlds. This was published in the UK as a white paper, but what was uh, made very clear in that white paper was that it was a legally binding agreement 
Uh, and uh, it said, well, in the introduction, it said this, we've secured a new settlement to give the United Kingdom special status in the European Union and went on to talk about things uh, like how it was going to make sure that there were restrictions on migration, uh, that people coming to the country can no longer uh, take out before putting something in, uh, and that they've secured vital protections for the economy, never joining the Eurozone and all this kind of stuff. Now, uh, the, the, it's, it's quite ironic that really in a sense, because of course uh, the, uh, the French never allowed anybody to take out before they'd put in. Uh, that was very much a British government thing that we should be allowed to uh, take, uh, that people coming into the country should be allowed to take out of the system before they put in. But nonetheless, uh, Alex, I'm going to be fascinated to see, and I've no doubt that there will be a deal done here because uh, there's too much at stake for there not to be, particularly on the defence and intelligence and policing side. Um, I'd be very surprised if there isn't a deal done here, and I'd also be surprised if that deal doesn't look quite similar to, to the deal that was done in 2016. When you're on the continent, Mike, what you notice is that every nation's um equivalent of the Home Office, so the Department of the Interior or Eternal Affairs, the Department of Security in some EU member states, as it's called, is absolutely determined to have full intelligence on everyone on their territory and passing through their territory. And without exception, they and the British Home Office, too, for their part, regard it as a, a given that they must have full access to each other's uh, increasingly tyrannical databases of DNA, DNA identification, travel records, banking records. The US is not the only uh, big bully in the world of banking and sanctions anymore. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the whole gamut of uh, facial recognition tools in which Britain is in fact in the lead. And you can see this vector developing in the run-up to that 2016, early 2016, big unveil of Cameron's. Because of course, before that, you had Theresa May in her long tenure at the Home Office, which increasingly I'm persuaded is the key ministry here driving this ongoing security partnership, the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence more than the Foreign and Commonwealth Office is. And at that point, Mrs May was quite determined that after Britain had opted out of the entire so-called pillar, the new pillar of the EU that had come in with the Treaty of Amsterdam and Nice uh, of judicial and security cooperation, she brought Britain back into well over 100 measures, including most notoriously the European arrest warrant. Britain's not unique here. Uh, off EU jurisdictions in close cooperation with the EU, such as Norway and Iceland, have voluntarily entered into the European arrest warrant. Uh, what binds together each country, I think, in geographical Europe now, whether or not they're in the EU, is that they share this assumption that total information awareness on their, well, not even citizens, but people on their territories and passing through uh, some part of Europe is absolutely to be shared. So there's no governmental interest in, in ditching that. Well, I'm, I think we just remind people as, uh, uh, as well on that, Alex, that we've got 77 Brigade of the British Army openly boasting of its uh, work at the moment to spy on anybody who disagrees with HM government's COVID policy. Um, and that information is going to be shared as well. I don't think there's any doubt about that. No, um, it's part of the paradigm of the, the whole, the whole uh, flabby establishment that has grown up uh, around, between, above, below governments, elected and appointed governments, the classic three branches. In the putty space in between these, the glue, if you like, there is the world of the non-governmental organisation, the lobby group. Uh, these are by nature transnational corporatist 
pseudo-fascist, fascistoid, as they say on the continent. They're not interested in borders. They're interested in where people are. They see money and energy. They don't see national adherence. Uh, so this is the thinking, the technocratic thinking, uh, which is, is gaining dominance. Uh, I mean, it's, it's something that's no longer uttered in dark corners. James Dellingpole is having the world expert on um, technocracy come in and, and discuss the 80 year prior history of it now. So uh, people who were, have recently defected from the mainstream uh, media have actually taken this on board. There is no alternative discourse being offered anywhere in government, in the classic sense, in the in the ministries, in the parliaments. There is no dissent to this system. Uh, that is uh, extremely true. A worry, yeah, yeah, a worrying, extremely worrying situation. Um, okay, let's uh, let's move on from that then, and uh, back onto the issue of vaccines. Uh, this is Leeds Live this morning. I think this whole uh, furore over uh, vaccine cards was started by the Daily Mail. Uh, but uh, this is uh, being described as an official photograph from the NHS. Uh, and the headline in Leeds Live here is the COVID-19 vaccine card every single person in the UK will be given to prove you've had it. Um, and uh, it's being suggested that this is uh, going to be some kind of embryonic uh, immunity passport sort of thing. People on social media uh, absolutely complaining that uh, it's totally uh, forgeable, there's been no problem in producing one of these for yourselves, there's no photograph on it. Um, but in, in fact, what is it? Well, it's a record of the uh, vaccine that you've had. Uh, it's, it has a place there for the batch number. It has a place for the date that the vaccine was given and for the two doses of the vaccine. Um, so it looks to me more like something for uh, making sure that uh, if there's any kind of adverse reaction, uh, that they have a record of which uh, that you carry on your person, that, that, that because it says in bold text there, make sure you keep this record card in your purse or wallet, um, so that if you have an adverse reaction in the future, that uh, it's understood which batch that came from and uh, very quickly and, and what date you'd received the vaccine in the first place. I'm sure you're right on that, Mike, but of course this is a thin end of the wedge psychological operation. The moment these cards are pushed out and some people are carrying these cards, that gives uh, restaurants or pubs or other venues uh, effectively the right to ask for them or to ask if you have one. So I see this as the thin end of the wedge of selling a more formalised uh, medical passport. This is, this is given out in a cardboard form to make people think that, oh well, this is just a sort of temporary measure. Right, well it's uh, interesting you say that because that's exactly what uh, uh, Nadim Zahawi, the health minister, has said, I think you'll probably find that restaurants and bars and cinemas and other venues, sports venues, will probably want proof of vaccination. Right, so this is making up the law as you go along. Well, it's making it was... up the law as you go along. It's also, the article was also about softening people up to the idea because uh, people yeah. still don't uh, quite realise that this is the direction of travel. Um, so uh, these official images are showing the card that patients are going to be covering. Uh, it's not clear if the cards will be mandatory to carry, but they'll be handed out in every case, said the mail. Uh, and in large bold font on the front, it warns with uh, those with one to make sure you keep this record card in your purse or wallet. Uh, so people complaining about it. Uh, that's what uh, Nadim Zahawi had to say about it. Uh, he also, uh, but, uh, sorry. Could we just ask Alex's opinion? Should we be trusting Nadim Zahawi and his opinion on this, Alex? I'm not aware that he has any background in health or associated scholarship. I have to trade very carefully, but I think that the late Gordon Bowden was one of many who looked into Mr. Zahawi and didn't like what they found. Let's just leave it at that. I mean, the whole idea of a cardboard ID card, it's so quintessentially British. 
sorry, I don't mean any arrogance here as an emigre, but the Continentals continually say this, and they, they have a good reason to do so. You Brits are so hypocritical. You know, they have on the, on the continent a population register. You are a number. You are a barcode. Uh, you have to pr present your papers, please. It's a high-tech chipped ID document. Uh, in Britain, we have to pretend. Uh, if people go to ukcolumn.org slash constitution, and look up the text accompanying episode three of our new podcast series on the Constitution, and then uh, click on the word asserted in that, they will find the description of a 1950 case, Wilcock versus Muckle, which was precisely the, and, uh, this in the previous guise. It was uh, Britain saying, you must carry these cheap, temporary-looking cardboard ID cards because of the war, don't you know? And that dragged on for a few years. And then it took uh, Mr. Wilcock saying he was a classic liberal to defy a, pol a policeman. And very similar, actually, to what's gone on with uh, Piers Corbyn, because the magistrates didn't dare say uh, we uphold his case, but they did give him an absolute discharge without actually technically declaring him innocent of the charge of failing to supply ID. So this is repeating itself. I mean, the previous iteration was a trial in Greater Manchester, wasn't it, where under the early Blair government, people in Greater Manchester were being told they were guinea pigs for a not quite but sort of compulsory ID scheme. And more latterly, the same thing's happening in Merseyside. So... These things repeat themselves in Britain. We don't seem to have learned a lesson yet. We're not more liberal than the continental countries. We're just better at disguising the tricks. Yes, well, that's okay. a good point. Yeah. Now, uh, let's uh, let's come on to this then. Now, this is uh, from Polish media. It's interesting that I didn't see any coverage of this uh, in English-speaking media. Uh, but since nobody will be able to read the, uh, or at least very few of our viewers will be able to read the headline on that, let's do a quick translation. Uh, coronavirus vaccine. Uh, there are doubts uh, Switzerland has not approved. So what is this saying? Switzerland has not approved the use of coronavirus vaccines from Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Moderna. Uh, the Federal Office of Public Health noted that the information provided by the manufacturers lacked data on safety, efficacy and quali quality. Uh, the Swiss want to analyse data from vaccine research more closely rather than rely on conclusions presented to them by the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and uh, Klaus Bolt, who is head of... Uh, Authorization at Swiss Medic uh, said we lack data on the effectiveness of clinical trials and the important subgroups that participated in this large study. Um, so I think that's uh, got to be seen as a piece of uh, positive news, Brian, in the sense that uh, at least one country in the world is saying no at this point in time. Uh, and really, that's what every country in the world should have been saying until there were in real, really independent uh, tests of these vaccines done. Uh, Alex, it staggers me that, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the MHRA a little bit later uh, once again and their independence. Um, but uh, this is, you know, vaccine companies have simply run some tests for themselves. They've said for themselves this is safe. And there's been a rubber stamp exercise gone on in the UK and the United States and other places. Here again, I, I know it's not the only angle to grind, but it's the one where perhaps I had a bit more insight than in other areas. The difference between the English-speaking world and the, the deeper you get into the European continent, two different approaches to health. And uh, actually, in the socialised medicine model of Europe, the Bismarckian healthcare model, uh, especially in Switzerland, which has got trays of the French and the German system, really, people are extremely keen to research for themselves. We might get into this a little later with regard to the high degree of scepticism about the coronavirus vaccines uh, now uh, evident in opinion polls of the French. But the Swiss, especially their laboratory testing, are no notoriously independent. They don't get the, uh, uh, the, the swing uh, or the, the, the pressure, uh, or they don't cave into it at least, uh, that you get with pharmaceutical lobbies in countries like the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Australia. 
uh, no, that there is actually some rigor to the process and Swiss laboratories to this day, they can be nobbled, but they have a long history of actually saying, I cannot in good conscience find this a safe product more than in other countries. And of course, Switzerland is at least in the first line of defense, as it were, uh, outside the EU system and the NATO system and to some extent the UN system. Uh, so it's, it's a little safer in Switzerland for laboratory people to stick their neck out. Uh, well, yes, indeed. Now, the, the less good news, of course, is that Switzerland, despite taking this stand on it, I mean, the, the, at the end of the day, the vaccine companies don't care because Switzerland has placed orders for several million uh, doses of the various vaccines. Um, and so the, the, those companies are getting the money either way. Um, so from their point of view, it doesn't really matter. But Alex, you were mentioning uh, the French and, uh, well, opinion polls not working out too good or too well for the uh, for the vaccines. So on the left, just one of the sources repeating, uh, it was the Journal du Dimanche, I think, that covered it first, but ladepeche.fr is doing a write-up of this, uh, reporting that the majority now, uh, by a slight degree in France, uh, is opposed to the vaccinations being offered. And there's a write-up in English of that on the right-hand side of the page, the connection, COVID anti-vax sentiment rises above 50% in France. Of course, there's no differentiation here in the rather controlled French press and the Anglophone coverage that spins off of that. Uh, in most particularly there is just deploring of these anti-vaxxers and, and no details on the fact that the French, German, Swiss populations are much more likely than English-speaking ones to say, well, I'm not opposed to inoculation in principle. I will have classic inoculations for myself and my children, whether they're obligatory or not. But I don't want any messenger RNA editing vaccines, such as the Pfizer vaccine. And the other conundrum, of course, as you say, Mike, is that many of the pharmaceuticals that make a killing literally and metaphorically out of the English speaking world are Swiss headquarters, although, of course, the ownership is often Britain, British based. And then in the next slide here, we have a zoom in to uh, the uh, poll data as covered by one of these uh, French write ups, La Dépêche. And you can see that France, but also French speaking countries in West Africa, Togo and Ghana, are right up in the lead. Uh, in, in saying, I don't like this current vaccine. This is data, of course, from the Wellcome Trust, rather suspiciously described in the top banner line there of the French newspaper as a, as a, as a health NGO. Well, it's a bit more than that. It's kind of a, an arm of the British government these days. But Russia also sceptical. What I draw out of this is that it's by language area that people are uh, in the French-speaking countries in the lead. There is very few economic ties or uh, similarities, I should say, between French West Africa and France. But it's France, Switzerland, Belgium, uh, and the, the African countries that speak French that are in the lead in scepticism because there's simply a great deal more honest and complete information available in books and journals in French than there is in English. Uh, well, it's interesting uh, there because they seem to have uh, the UK somewhere in the 5 to 10% range. Uh, but actually on Andrew Marr's programme on the BBC yesterday morning, uh, he was acknowledging that in the UK, or, and he was in fact doing more than acknowledging it, he was expressing uh, pretty deep concern that in the UK, uh, it's around the 35% uh, mark. So, so I just wonder, Alex, uh, how how accurate that uh, that is. I suspect they're understating the the situation. Quite possibly they are understating it. I think I just said Ghana by mistake. It's Togo and Gabon which are out there along with France, you know, above, above a quarter of people saying I'm not interested in this particular vaccine. And these are within the French speaking world, Togo and Gabon are regarded as well educated examples of French, uh, French speaking countries. So it does seem to correlate more with people looking into things for themselves. And again, I'm, I'm really not knocking 
Britain today, but I have to say some of these things. Uh, there is a tendency for people, uh, not many of whom are known to me, uh, to conclude that in particular mRNA editing novel vaccines are not tried and tested, yet they will not say so in public. Uh, what's different about the continent, particularly France, is that people will just come out and say it. I'm not interested. Yes. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, right. Well, let's just uh, quickly move on then, because, uh, of course, the plans for the vaccine delivery have been announced. Uh, and first of all, we're going to have residents of care homes and their carers. Uh, that's the first batch, which and that begins tomorrow, apparently. Uh, then that's going to be followed by everybody over, aged over 80 uh, and plus frontline health and social care workers. Uh, can, can I just sort of interject there, Mike? Of course, residents of care homes and their carers they are immensely vulnerable to what the government wants to do because nobody can protect them. Nobody can interface properly with people who are residents in care homes. Their families can't interact with them properly. Um, so what, this... What, I was just going to say that's absolutely right. And we're going to see a little bit of video later yeah. on that demonstrates that indeed, that point. Uh, do you want to say it? No, that's, that, that was just the main bit. I find it very interesting that the government is targeting a group of people that the government itself has made, um, we'll call it doubly vulnerable. They're vulnerable by means of their age and, and possibly their um, physical condition. But now you've, you've broken the protection of the families. So I see this group uh, almost as as I'm going to use the word as a group to be culled. This is what the government is, is about here. OK, now uh, then third on the list is everybody aged 75. Fourth on the list is everybody aged 70 and over plus those considered to be uh, clinically vulnerable. Then uh, comes everybody over 65. Then everybody between 16 and 64 that has an underlying health condition. That's the sixth group. The seventh group is everybody aged over 60. Uh, uh, sorry, seventh group, the eighth group is everybody aged over 55 and the ninth group, everybody aged over 50. And according to the, uh, the, the sort of time scales that the government is talking about, uh, we get to group nine by sort of February, March time, perhaps. Right. But you've also done something else, Mike, which is now you are dividing the population of the country into these arbitrary groups. And this is effectively saying that if you're 50 years old or, or older, you have now become quasi-vulnerable because you are on this list. So just by the fact that somebody gets to the age of 50, the government says, ah, oh, oh, we've got to pay special attention to your health and well-being because you're over 50. Uh, well, that's true. That, that There is that. But additionally, of course, they are setting eight, um, generations off against each other because if yeah. you're young and they're driving this fake uh, demand for the vaccine because of course, if you're young, you want to do more things. You want to go to the pubs. You want to go to restaurants. You want to go to cinemas. And those uh, and nasty you, old people are stopping us. Well, well, exactly, because they've well, they've been vaccinated and we haven't. We don't get to go yeah. because we can't prove our immunity. Well, are you immune anyway? We'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but uh, then let's have a look at uh, at this, because, of course, ca uh, the care homes, uh, the first uh, group to be uh, uh, starting tomorrow to be vaccinated, uh, and this letter has been going out. Thank you very much to the person who sent this to me. Uh, dear colleague, uh, COVID-19 vaccinations and care homes uh, program launch. So it describes the pro program launch. Uh, now, here's, uh, here's a key part of it here. In preparation, care home managers should put together staff lists, including basic details, name, gender, date of birth, NHS number, GP details for each staff member, 
uh, be ready to provide each staff member with a letter confirming their employment in the care sector, keep staff records of vaccinations and report via the capacity tracker. Uh, now, last week, if you remember, we were talking about the uh, training course that's, going to, that's being given to uh, vaccine volunteers, the people that the NHS is going to ask the volunteer to administer vaccines that are effectively untrained, other than having gone through uh, a, an online uh, course. Uh, and if you remember, there was a big section on that on consent. Uh, and of course, if we look at uh, what the government's saying with respect to the idea of immunity passports, uh, they're very much suggesting that, well, it's not, it's not uh, mandatory for you to take this vaccine, uh, but there might be, you know, a, a problem with uh, a variety of things, corporate requirements for you to follow terms and conditions, which might say that you've had to have the, have the vaccine. And, but, and but if you look at this, that, that it is, there is no doubt in my mind that staff are going to be uh, effectively bullied into taking this. It's going to be mandatory. It's going to be a requirement that staff have had this. Yeah, and there's, there's nothing about informed consent, which, of course, is the NHS's policy, that if you're going to receive treatment, you should know the benefits and you should also uh, know the dangers and the side effects of what you're getting. That now is not mentioned in any of the NHS documentation. Um, so yesterday on the Andrew Marr Show, uh, June Rain, who's the CEO of the MHRA, said it's vitally important that everyone eligible has the vaccination to help defeat this terrible disease, is what she said. Okay, uh, if you, you can take that as you like. Um, but uh, let's see what uh, they've been up to and the British government has been up to. Uh, because, of course, what happened next? Uh, well, sorry, before we get to that, let's ask this question. Uh, Brian, what danger does any unvaccinated individual pose to the vaccinated? Well, judge, judging by the infection rates, almost none. Well, it depends, doesn't it, on whether the vaccine actually provides any level of immunity. Now, the uh, mainstream press today uh, absolutely trying to persuade people that you might get three months immunity or you might get six months immunity. But in fact, we know that the uh, result from these vaccines uh, isn't uh, immunity at all. It's a sort of suppression of symptoms. Um, so the question then is, what is the benefit for the government of rolling this out in the way in this way? Well, if we've been paying attention to the narratives that have been going through the mainstream press in the last uh, couple of months, uh, the idea of uh, an asymptomatic spreader has been pushed around. We've got to be fearful of asymptomatic spreaders. Um, and so there is a narrative building here that the unvaccinated uh, could uh, still infect uh, those who have had the vaccination. And that because they've had the vaccination, which suppresses the symptoms, that those people then become asymptomatic, asymptomatic spreaders, and therefore we need to continue with lockdown uh, and so on. So um, this is slowly building up to become uh, a, a, you know, a very a gift that keeps on giving for the government, in a sense. Yeah, because it's the whole thing is based on a full premise. So they they have got to continue to lie and manipulate the data in order to keep this thing going to their entire satisfaction. Yes, and we know we know from the medical scientists who are speaking to us directly that what the government is stating about the efficacy of the vaccines is not true. That is correct. So where does that take us? Well, I tweeted this out in the last few days. It was kindly sent through to me, but it was a copy of the package leaflet that went with the Pfizer vaccine. And what I found interesting was that on the document, you can find this quite easily online if you search for it. 
uh, COVID-19 mRNA vaccine BNT162B2 concentrate for solution for injection. You can find the, the document. It's not very long. It does report side effects. But I was just fascinated that when you read down through the paragraph on reporting side, side effects, it said as the final sentence there, by reporting side effects, you can help provide more information on the safety of the vaccine. So what, what you're actually getting there is that we've got a, um, a drug manufacturer who is saying my product's safe. It then puts out a leaflet clearly showing that in all circumstances it's not safe from some pretty unpleasant mild side effects to clearly worse side effects and side effects that are not declared. But if you should be unlucky enough to get these side effects, well, do tell us because then you can help us make more profits from our defective medication. Yeah, well, what I mean, the cynicism is unbelievable. Well, yeah, but it's worse than that, isn't it? Because what they're effectively doing there is acknowledging that uh, uh, they're using the general population or the specific so, uh, groups that, that are on the, on that list that we just showed you in the order. Uh, they're using those as the uh, as the, the test, the lab rats. As the lab rats. Alex, are we being unkind here or, or are we seeing it as it is? You would always be accused by some of being unkind, but then the, the basis on which people say that is often a knee-jerk, oh, come, come. Uh, the British establishment wouldn't be like this. You know, the, um, the final split between me and some of my old GCHQ buddies who tolerated a bit of dissidence on my part about Russia policy uh, was when I said that, uh, that the entire pool of the social work profession and the entire pool of some parts of the medical establishment had been tainted. And it was this was a classic case of, oh, come, come, don't frighten the horses. Your job as, as a more informed man or as a man who's had a government role is to keep everyone on board rowing together. So that's the basis on which we get accused uh, of this this kind of thing. But, you know, Brian, you, this isn't the first time that uh, vulnerable groups in the population uh, just in Britain, uh, just in the home counties area of England, uh, have been uh, tested this way. I mean, you never tire of recommending that people look up Teresa Cooper's book, which has been published as an audiobook as well, both as the, under the title Trust No One and under the title Pin Down. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the entire vector of that uh, autobiography is that these young ladies uh, in a Church of England-run uh, home are visited once a week by an unscrupulous GP in hock to a pharmaceutical who's getting a handsome sum per head to try out the anti-depression medication and other pharmaceutical products uh, on these captive minors before they are given license for the general population. Well, that's, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and of course, the uh, girls in that uh, uh, church institution were being drugged unconscious for days and abused alongside those tests. So if people have not come across that particular book, I'd recommend that you read it for a real insight into what goes on in uh, United Kingdom. Um, now, uh, Brian mentioned uh, immunity from prosecution for vaccine companies uh, uh, last week, but uh, the specific announcement was made on Thursday with respect to Pfizer. Uh, so here's Jurist. Uh, UK government grants Pfizer civil legal liability for COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, and they're saying uh, the UK government announced Thursday that it had granted Pfizer legal immunity, protecting uh, American pharmaceutical company from civil lawsuits due to any unforeseen complications arising from the problems with its COVID, uh, from problems with its COVID-19 vaccine. Now, of course, uh, they can't really be unforeseen in the sense that uh, there hasn't been proper testing going on in the first place. Uh, 
it said the it says the special legal indemnity was the result of an emergency government consultation in September, uh, when the UK Department of Health and Social Care determined that changes to civil liability were necessary to better facilitate the widespread use of a COVID-19 vaccine in Britain. So there's been a, a, a statutory instrument laid, uh, Regulation 3, which uh, implements Regulation 345 of this legislation, the Human Medicines Regulations 2020, uh, 2012. Um, so let's just look at what Section 345 says. Uh, because last week, Brian said, well, of course, uh, it might provide immunity for uh, the companies, but there's always the individuals. Well, in fact, there aren't. Uh, because what this is saying is that none of the following are to be subject to any civil liability for any loss or damage resulting from the use of the product in accordance with the recommendation or requirement. A, any holder of an authorization for the product. B, any manufacturer for the product. C, any officer, servant, employee or agent of a person within paragraphs A or B. Or D, any healthcare professional. So that really rules out anybody uh, that could possibly uh, be linked to the delivery of uh, these vaccines or for the vaccines themselves. Um, so there's complete immunity there. Um, and uh, well, it didn't end there because uh, of course, also uh, on Saturday or Friday, this, uh, this was or uh, the vaccine, uh, the COVID-19 vaccines have been added to the uh, vaccine damage payments scheme uh, as well. So that uh, uh, apparently uh, allows for a payment of up to £120,000 for individuals that have been disabled in the rare case that a vaccine produces highly damaging side effects to patients. Now, I've got to ask a question, Brian, what possible use could £120,000 be to somebody that had had some kind of life-changing injury well, uh, as a result of uh, Mike, receiving a vaccination? Uh, absolutely correct. And if people go and investigate that... Uh, um, uh, compensation scheme that the government runs you will find case after case where it took people years and years and years in order to get any compensation out and by the time they got the compensation out the lives had all be already been ruined over that period and of course as you're saying the money was insignificant to have any real effect on the future life so the government creates the pot to give the illusion that there's some form of compensation scheme why should it do it because it's telling us the vaccines are safe well of course the reality is the vaccines we, we can see over history have not been safe but when people have come to that government pot to take the money uh, they've been delayed stalled obfuscated for years and then given a sum which is utterly derisory for the scale of the damage that they that's befallen them and let's remember that people have died to, as a result of vaccines so that's the end of another life I mean it, this is, this is appalling what's going on, Mike. Well, okay, so, uh, but uh, the news gets even better because UNICEF is gonna ship 2 billion COVID-19 vaccines to developing na nations next year uh, because everybody, all the governments have agreed that nobody should be left out of this. Um, so uh, 2 billion doses, um, UNICEF is working with 350 airlines and freight companies to deliver vaccines in 1 billion syringes to countries such as Burundi, Afghanistan, and Yemen. Uh, and uh, at the G recent G20 summit, leaders of the world's biggest economies pledged to ensure equitable distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. So everybody has to get it. Uh, COVAX uh, is the organization co-led by Gavi, uh, the World Health Organization and the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. 
are going to discourage uh, governments from hoarding COVID-19 vaccines uh, and to focus on first vaccinating the most at risk in every country. So that's good news. Well, uh, of course, earlier uh, we had this lady on, June Rain from the MHRA. And if you remember back to last week's programme, of course, uh, the government saying uh, that they were extremely proud at the independence of this organisation, that the approval of the Pfizer vaccine in the UK was done independently, no vested interests in that decision whatsoever. Uh, well, let's just uh, go back uh, a period of time here uh, to this press release. The MHRA awarded uh, $1.3 million uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that, that turned into £980,000 uh, for a partnership to improve safety monitoring of medicines in low and middle income countries. So, uh, so you know, the MHRA taking money from somebody who absolutely has a vested interest uh, and that in turn creates a massive conflict of interest, does it not? Aside so, from the other conflict of interest that we highlighted last week with respect to connections to AstraZeneca and uh, GlaxoSmithKline and others. Yeah, so MHRA is not fit for purpose and it, it's simply a bought organisation that in fact is working on behalf of the people pushing the vaccines out. They should be challenged directly. I would encourage our audience to look at the facts around this and then go to challenge the individuals within MHRA directly as to what their independence really is. Um, now, Alex, uh, um, try not to laugh uh, when I put this one on screen. This is Dan Hodges from the, over the, from the Mail on Sunday yesterday. Uh, his headline, how Vladimir Putin's anti-vaxxers are trying to use COVID to kill us as surely as his agents did in Salisbury. Uh, and uh, he said, we've been tracking the anti-vaxxers propaganda and a lot of it is linked to his bot farm in St. Petersburg, a minister told me. So this is uh, Dan Hodges taking some information from the government, from a government minister, giving it no real sort of uh, criticism or comment, just taking it and printing it. Uh, and that government minister went on to say, part of it is trying to sow the usual disinformation and chaos. And part is due to the fact he's worried about Russia being seen to lag behind on producing its own vaccine. Well, that's a complete load of nonsense because Russia has already rolled out its vaccine. It's been vaccinating uh, quietly. It hasn't made a big deal about it. I think, it, I think uh, the foreign ministry and the uh, embassy finally made some comment about it after Britain had uh, made such a fanfare of theirs. Uh, and then Dan Hodges goes on to say there's plenty of evidence Putin began leveraging the anti-vaxxer movement as part of his destabilization operation long before the appearance of COVID. In 2018, a report by the American Johns Hopkins University revealed how Russia had identified vaccinations as a wedge issue. He goes on to talk about uh, Russia's involvement in, in the United States election process. Uh, he says that GACHQ was tasked with defending uh, Oxford, the Oxford vaccine from a Russian misinformation campaign. And last week, the army mobilized its shadowy 77th Brigade, which specializes in counter adversarial information activity with the mission to specifically counter anti-COVID vaccine cyber uh, activity from Russian and Chinese operatives. So the claim is uh, that this is being uh, pushed, uh, you know, 77 Brigade's efforts are being pushed outside the borders. Uh, this is not true, of course. They're operating inside the borders on people that are perceived by others, by the establishment, to be linked to Russian propaganda. Maybe they've appeared on RT or something like that, for example. So, uh, Alex, uh, 
I don't really know where to start with this because they keep running out the same old uh, tropes and rhetoric and it didn't work at any point in the recent past. Why on earth would the likes of Dan Hodges think that he can make this fly at this stage? My challenge to Dan Hodges, whose Telegraph blogs I used to read with quite some respect for their honesty on British politics, is this, or indeed anyone else who's using the term disinformation, Carol Cadwallader or anyone else, uh, regardless of any political spectrum they come from. Can you define the difference between misinformation and disinformation? After all, misinformation is a very well long-established English word it's morally neutral. Well, I won't give uh, too much of the answer away. I'm, I'm interested in eliciting a definition from others. Disinformation is a specific Soviet term, and I haven't seen any clear definitions of terms yet. Therefore, disinformation is uh, an emotional label until proved otherwise, as far as I'm concerned. Now, I know that it's a sub-editor who writes the headlines and not Mr. Hodges himself, but I'm struck by this phrase, Vladimir Putin's anti-vaxxers. Clearly, the second element in that phrase, the noun anti-vaxxers, is people in Britain who are sceptical about this specific claimed new vaccine remedy. Right? It's, it's not actually talking about people who refuse all inoculations on principle. So there's a, a muddying of the waters. But since it's clear that we're talking about British people writing in the English language as native speakers about their scepticism about a particular vaccine, to call them Vladimir Putin's anti-vaxxers is to really to use McCarthyism squared, McCarthyism in an order of magnitude greater upon them, and to say you are actually Russians, you're actually Russians, uh, you're uh, broadcasting Kremlin information. Now that's an extremely serious accusation that's gone out under Mr Hodges' line. Is he prepared to stand by the sub-editor's title there? Um, well I believe he is because because if you read down through the article he's he's you know, the, the sub-editor's headline is not misrepresenting his position in any way, way shape, or form, Alex. So we should... We then should we be, have serious problems. And we should well, be then challenging... Then we have serious him. problems. <laughs> yeah, go, go ahead. ahead, Ryan. Okay. Well, go we ahead. have serious problems there because uh, Hodges, as far as I'm concerned, and I think it's his mother before him, got in a tangle with the Labour Party over the increasing application of a Blairite whip over the party. And he regarded himself as an early 2010s dissident in the medium of the time, which was Telegraph blogs. This was before UK Column got going. Um, and now he seems to be turning tables on those who he would have previously associated himself with, free thinkers and first principles thinkers. But Brian, you wanted to add something. Uh, we should just mention before Brian does that, of course, his mother was Glenda Jackson. Is Glenda, Glenda Jackson, uh, um, former Labour MP and obviously actress? Yeah, well, it, I, all I wanted to say was that, of course, uh, people need to be focusing on the journalists themselves. It's not enough to, to uh, fight back against the Daily Mail or The Guardian or whatever paper uh, the articles appear in. It's the journalists themselves that needs to be held to account. We'll get a much better response from this. In a minute, I'll be looking at a Guardian report, but it's the same thing at work. Uh, now, earlier, Brian said, uh, made a comment about the fact that uh, uh, families cannot sort of look after their elderly relatives in care homes. Uh, and somebody sent me a video clip this morning uh, and really makes is making the point very strongly that video clips like the one we're about to show you um, need to be used uh, to uh, challenge MPs and start getting some action. 
on what's going on in care homes in this country at the moment. So just have a look at this and then we can discuss it afterwards. Well, right, well, can I, can I tell you, for the record, that her colour is very poor. You know, she's, she's quite blue around the lips and her breathing is, is quite fast. And that's, to me, that is a, a cause for concern. Well, I know, but you never do have concerns for her. Do you know, with respect, you you don't. You know, you. you I, I understand you're doing your best, but you know, I can see that my mother is not well just by looking at her through the through the window. Well, all I can suggest is that you ring up on Monday morning. Well, what? What do you mean I day? ring up on Monday morning? That's two whole days away. Well, I'm like I say, I'm not the manager. So you're not I'm the manager, doing... but I mean, I'm I'm I'm. I'm, report, I'm reporting, I'm reporting, hang on a minute, just a minute before you go, I am, I am asking you, I am, I want this document, hang on a minute, don't take her away, hey, don't take her away, don't take her away, don't take her away, you bastards, you A tragic piece of film. Um, I mentioned it last week that I can personally vouch that this is is going on with two particular elderly re uh, relatives who we now cannot have any easy contact with because the effectively the government has started to introduce laws which are not proper laws. They're being interpreted and misinterpreted by the residential homes and the care homes. Uh, but of course, they turn the, the, uh, the lock or draw the bolt on the door and the family is, is then prevented from uh, being able to interact properly with their elderly relatives. So this lady getting very emotional and swearing at the end of the clip, I don't blame her at all. She's letting off steam, but she would have gone away in utter desperation mm. at watching essentially strangers keeping her mother in, in a prison environment. And this is happening to tens and tens of thousands of elderly people across the country. And we know that many of those tens and tens of thousands of elderly people were killed off by the current government as a result of their I'm going to call it woefully inadequate, but I think it was a deliberately planned event to infect those elderly people with COVID. So, Alex, we, we are watching a complete and utter breakdown of constitutional principles in this country. We've got a dictatorship which is now simply saying we're going to stop you showing love and compassion to members of your family. That is the prima facie evidence of these clips. And I think what's holding some people back from enunciating that conclusion, that there are such things as complete and utter bastards in the National Health Service and in private health care, is this idea that certain professions are beyond criticism. Uh, again, it's an, another version of the block I encountered, well, not, not so much internally, but after leaving GCHQ from former colleagues, uh, who were saying you shouldn't go that far. Uh, you shouldn't impugn certain professions, the police, social work, uh, the party policies, uh, or, uh, as represented in Parliament, because these people are there for us. 
we must all be on the same page. You need to get past this attitude, I'm afraid, and uh, Britain is particularly prone to it because we've been blessed with a history remarkably free of tyranny. You only need to cross the English Channel and the countries that are even the most like Britain, all of a sudden, as soon as you land in a country like the Netherlands, and certainly if you go further away from it, the assumption is people who are not related to me my blood are very likely to want to trick me and to take my resources off me. And that doesn't magically stop when you put on a carer's suit. Yes, and, and to be fair to the carers, of course, the carers now live a particularly uh, um, unpleasant world because they've got a huge amount of pressure put on them by their employers who are telling them what they must and must not do. And uh, they're caught in the trap as well. They're going to be forced vaccinated themselves. So, well, I'm just going to say, that nonetheless, there was a certain amount of callousness there, which, which I think, no matter how much pressure you're under, you, you can't allow your humanity to disappear all of a sudden. Uh, you can't, and I, I'm, I'm absolutely accepting what you say, Mike. But of course, we we know that staff in these care homes are particularly being told, for example, you must not tolerate any bad manners or abusive behavior. Mm. And so the moment that lady was showing real human passion and getting passionate because her mother's being taken away, the care assistant will interpret that as abusive behavior because she's been programmed to believe that. Mm. So we're moving on to the subject of how people's minds have been manipulated to create this system. Uh, just take a break from that at the moment. Contrast what was happening in that care home uh, with Nigel Farage, who a couple of days ago posted this video. So a big decision was made. The schools were to reopen but hospitality was to pay the price. It has been a catastrophic year for pubs, wine bars, in fact, anybody involved in the hospitality trade. Now, from tomorrow, some pubs in the country are reopening, others in tier three, life for them is pretty much impossible. In Wales, that maniac, Drakeford, who's the first minister, has now banned alcohol in pubs, something that Cromwell didn't even manage to achieve. But what I've come to have a look at today so there we have it. Whilst all the things are going on in the country at the moment, we have not come out of uh, the European Union. Brexit has not been completed, but we've got people being brutalised uh, by the police on the streets. We've got elderly people being brutalised and killed off in nursing and care homes. And Nigel Farage steps forward and says that the most important issue is that we should be supporting the pubs in this country. Now, I personally found this very offensive. You said to me, Mike, well, of course, we need to support the pubs. And I understand that remark. Why do we need to support the pubs? Because, of course, it's inside the pubs that people will talk about what is really happening in the country. And that is one of the key reasons why the government has made sure that pubs are sh uh, been shutting down permanently in their thousands, but also people aren't going to be allowed to go to social venues where they will talk and exchange information about what's going on. But I'm going to say, is this the best thing that Nigel Farage can focus on at the moment when the UK column can show so easily what the real, really serious matters are? Alex, I've stayed on the tail of um, Nigel Farage for a great many years. At one stage, we had 17.4 million people in this country 
clearly awake to the scam of the European Union and Brexit and that fire, that passion, which should now be applying itself uh, to the regulation of the, uh, of the Conservative government, effectively neutralised uh, by Nigel Farage, who's more interested in where he can get his next point from. This is, what, the third political party that Mr Farage has wished to lead? I know he didn't found UKIP, that's Dr Alan Sked who founded it. But then uh, Mr Farage founded the Brexit party and now he's founding a reform party. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll cut some slack to someone who defects from one party to another or becomes an independent out of reasons of conscience or from an independent starts collaborating with a party, particularly at a local council seat level for pragmatic reasons. But to hop to three parties in succession, uh, there's not really that much substance to the man, is there? Now, he's no fool. He understands his history. You can't say that he's hostile to the traditional British view of liberty, but he will not actually uh, enunciate in terms what he thinks are the core inalienable rights of freeborn Englishmen, or however he would like to express it. That there's not much actual backbone to his platform. Uh, ultimately, it's a sense of live and let live, but that's no good when you're up against a savage beast. You need to be able to defend certain core principles, such as we're now doing in our constitutional podcast series, A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. We're not claiming perfection. Uh, if anyone can do better, by all means, and understandably in party politics, you don't have the time to make the points we would do in a broadcast or a podcast. But I do not see the fundamental red lines with Mr Farage. Uh, I certainly don't. And... Uh, um... Right, we've got an ad yeah, coming yeah, in we'll here, just, we'll we? just, was, My train of thought wants to move on, but we need to pop our ad in. Yeah, look, we'll just, we'll just briefly uh, mention this. Uh, if you want to support the UK Column because you like what, you, what we do, then please, uh, that'd be very much appreciated. Head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. And just before we move on, uh, Alex, uh, you mentioned the Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. Uh, episode four of that is going up this afternoon. Uh, and we're looking at, well, our first look at, at democracy and what that means. Do you just want to mention something about that? So we're questioning whether democracy is the absolute and uh, ultimate British value. And uh, next uh, podcast, we'll be doing even more of that. So anyone who wishes to throw a hissy fit and say, I can't believe you guys are saying this, uh, is welcome to discontinue listening to the series now. But uh, the sad truth is that there are question marks over whether democracy is the apogee uh, and, you know, what it means. Is it a stable situation? Uh, David Scott and I, during the podcast, come at it from fairly similar angles. Uh, I wouldn't say that you disagree with us, Mike, but you take a slightly different perspective on it, I think. But it's not a stable system. And if you promise people democracy for its own sake, as the be-all and end-all, you don't end up with that. You end up inexorably with the theft of resources by majority vote and uh, a slide into... Well, I think David Scott would be prepared to call it socialism and death. I'm not quite as resolute in him in, uh, in, in questioning it that, that's in that way. But the term democracy covers a multitude of sins. So we're going at it hammer and tongs. We're going with some fairly heavyweight, mainly Central European thinkers in the episode that will be going up shortly. And in a couple of weeks' time, we intend to round that off by going to perhaps the best uh, 20th century British thinker who said, hang on about this democracy uh, and who looks at the party politics behind it. And that is Ben Green. 
So it'll be a bumpy ride, but if people have got with us this far, they'll be shortly prepared to go on to look at the historical development of the English and Scots and then British constitution uh, and understand it a little better than if we had just plunged in with the Anglo-Saxons straight off. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, Alex. Well, just to uh, reinforce the earlier comments about the uh, male journalist, I was intrigued by uh, this comment on social media. Um, it was being pushed around by quite a few people. Watch the narrative shift. Frontline workers will not be the first to get the vaccine. This is because if they refuse, and they will, uh, there will be no recovery from the PR gaffe. It then said 60% of nurses, 40% of doctors in NJ said they will not take the vaccine. Now, I'm assuming NJ is New Jersey, so I think the comment has come from overseas, but it was the Guardian article um, that had prompted what I thought was a very astute comment that uh, there's been a deliberate reason why the government sat suddenly backed off. Uh, this is the uh, Guardian article. NHS staff will no longer be amongst the first people to be vaccinated against COVID-19 after a rethink about who should be given priority. And we've looked at those priorities. As I was trying to read the rest of this article, I did actually uh, see it in the end. But of course, up came the Guardian's firewall. So they're pleading poverty and uh, need you to register and give them more details. Uh, but this was the journalist. And when you read the article, the one thing he doesn't do is any uh, investigation into anyone in the NHS who might have concerns. So I decided to put some words in his mouth. Um, I decided it was best to do no journalistic investigation into NHS staff concerns over the vaccine and just go for the easy option of promoting the government's an NHS pro-vaccine rhetoric. And that's exactly what he did in the article. No investigation into the fors and against uh, whatsoever. Um, now, uh, the press and the media, of course, uh, not doing their jobs in the most recent years uh, and people becoming aware of that. And so people aren't funding them properly and they've been suffering commercially and they haven't been getting the advertising revenue that they needed. And of course, we mentioned uh, many times, going back to, to uh, 2018, uh, that the government decided to what they describe as take action to tackle the challenges the media faces today uh, that uh, they launched the Cairn Cross Review. Dame Frances Cairn Cross will bring her uh, experience in journalism to tackle the issues. This was Matt Hancock speaking in 2018 uh, and he said that he trembled at the thought of a media regulated by the state in the time of malevolent political forces. Get this wrong and I fear for the future of our liberal democracy? Well, the question is whether we should have one of those. But anyway, uh, why am I bringing this up again? Because the EU has decided that actually in the EU, it's the same deal. Uh, they need to get ready to help uh, the, because of the digital decade that's coming to help the press and media in the EU. Uh, and so what are they saying? Uh, they're saying that at the end of last week, the uh, Commission adopted an action plan to support the recovery and transformation of the media and audiovisual sector. These sectors, particularly hit by the coronavirus crisis, are essential for democracy, uh, Europe's cultural diversity and digital autonomy. Uh, the action plan focuses on three areas of activity, 10 concrete actions to help the media sector recover from the crisis by facilitating and broadening access to finance, transformed by stimulating investments to embrace the twin digital and green transitions while ensuring the sector's future resilience and empower the European citizens and companies. Uh, so it's being done under the auspices of the recovery and resilience facility. Here's that uh, 672.5 billion euros in total 
Brian, uh, 312.5 billion euros in grants, 360 billion euros in loans, uh, and some of that money will be going to EU uh, press and media in order to uh, facilitate their future support of uh, EU narratives. Uh, and Alex, uh, you know, it, this is really a pretty incredible situation. We, we've talked about this on the uh, on the distance guide, the, the effect of having it's not a free media anymore because it is in the pay of government. Need money. And uh, I think you and I sometimes uh, shrink back, at least I do, Mike, when people say, uh, are Alex Thompson a journalist? Uh, that's a very uh, heavy or, or high calling to claim to have if you're not doing it full time. And most of us, certainly the correspondents like the two Davids and myself are doing it in our spare time and would perhaps prefer to call ourselves correspondents, even though I think David is a member of a journalist uh, organization now. Uh, journalism does require money and time for research. But then the question is, how are you funded? Uh, just one data point on that is that Suzanne Moore spoke recently to, I think it was uh, Lockdown TV, um, about this because she's a classic socialist and second generation feminist who found herself out on her ear from The Guardian after mildly questioning uh, whether you could transgender and then having a, being accused of, of, of uh, upsetting and, and fear, uh, her colleagues and causing them to fear for their safety in the office. But the point there was she went to see Catherine Viner, the editor, and said, isn't the Scots Trust behind me on this? Because that's the endowment fund that funds The Guardian with increasing links to government through things like uh, carrying public sector job adverts. And no, the Scots Trust said no, uh, because the, the money interests there cut across those of journalism. So having huge amounts of endowment is not the solution. The only other model is subscriber-based. And that's why the UK column model is perhaps your only hope of free and fair information in this age, even if we're quite small by comparison. For another take on it, people should listen to, I think just uploaded overnight, the dark journalist on his channel on YouTube talking to Catherine Austin Fitz. Towards the end of that, she says that it's the same with churches. Either you're funded locally by contributions from the pew, or you're funded like an increasing number of churches that are surviving these days by central endowments. And then they will pursue certain pro-government, pro-globalist agendas, inevitably. So uh, Mr. Hancock and others saying that they'll, they'll, because it was Hancock at that time, wasn't it? And others since saying we'll sling taxpayers' money at the press, shoring it up as a monopoly is no guarantee that there will be good or accurate reporting, just that there will be lots of reporting. Uh, well, the amount of money that uh, the EU is putting towards that 650... Well, no, not all of that is going to that particular purpose, but it's coming out of that fund. So, uh, oh, so uh, my point right. is that there's no shortage of cash for this job. No. And that's creating the Soviet as far as media is concerned. Well, let's interject with some uh, uh, pleasantry because this has been a very tough news today. Uh, we'd like to say thank you very much uh, to the people sending us uh, cards and gifts. It happens at this time of year. It's a very nice thing. Um, so this one we've got on screen was a very nice card. God's blessing to someone special at Christmas. And we say thank you for the card and the kind gift, which we believe has come all the way from North Carolina, USA. So um, welcome our US audience and thank you for people who've been watching for some time. We're also going to say thank you very much for the kind gift, which we've had from the Beach Hut man. Um, so that was unexpected and very well, um, uh, very received. well received. Yes. Okay, well, we've got an eye on the clock. Have we got a couple of minutes? Yes, two on, minutes. Okay. Um, we just introduced the subject of the court case 
in Plymouth, which we've mentioned previously about the renaming of a square. Um, now, the decision to rename the square, according to this gentleman, Danny Bamping, was taken on the back of uh, Black Lives Matters protests and therefore Plymouth City Council effectively caved in and decided they were get, uh, going to get rid of the name Sir John Hawkins Square because although he was a, a very prominent named person in the history of Plymouth and the Spanish Armada, he'd had been involved in the slave trade. And so the council effectively said, uh, we're going to change the name of the square and uh, give it to Jack Leslie, a black footballer. And uh, Danny Bamping uh, took the council to court. Uh, this was what he argued, that the council had failed to comply with the law and its policies during the process. The decision was therefore racist. It failed to properly consider the history of Sir John Hawkins and was a knee-jerk reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement following the death in police custody of George Floyd in the, Floyd in the United States in May. And uh, Danny also argued that the square was the wrong place to honour the footballer as there was a better alternative near a Plymouth Argyle uh, stadium. Well, the judge rejected that. Uh, she rejected all of Mr. Banping's arguments and said he'd failed to prove the council's decision was wrong. Under the law, I had to put significant weight on the opinion and decision taken by the council and the judge found it had given proper consideration and reasons. Um, now, this is uh, an interesting uh, um, situation. Um, I'm putting up the question, why should we, we be concerned? Well, the first reason we should be concerned is the court was not a court of record. It was a petty sessional civil court for administrative matters and not under civil procedure rules. And as such, there is no record now held of what the Plymouth City Council witnesses said. And the reason I raise that is because there is already a uh, challenge to the fact that the judge claims that uh, witnesses said one thing when people present in the court said that is not true. But we have no record. And the second one here. Um, that a court of no record is now setting the precedent for local authorities to rewrite history on the back of a violent political pressure group, Black Lives Matter, who are passing off this intersectionality, which we're encouraging people to buff up on, um, in intersectionality politics as a social science fact. And I have more on this, but uh, with an eye on the time, we'll save that for Wednesday's news. Alex, we've got something very, very dangerous happening here when we have a, a pressure group that pops up out of nowhere with a lot of money to support it. It attacks our institutions and history. And the next minute we have local authorities saying because of this aggressive pressure group, we must now change history. I look at this, I think of 1984. I also think of the Soviet system and we're in the middle of it, and it's it's driving forward with remarkable speed. I used to proudly tell people all, all over Eastern Europe that Britain had never renamed streets and squares and buildings, that this was something that Johnny Foreigner did, but those days are now behind us. And now a district judge, of course, is a very low-ranking judge, and as you pointed out, the court that she presided over that day doesn't really merit the name of court in a classic common law sense. But this is what you get under the radar of civil procedure. Uh, the lower courts uh, often will uh, act on a kind of 
Napoleonic uh, idea of balance of probabilities and uh, heavily weighted towards philosophical argument. And sometimes judges in their summing up will make that explicit as this district judge did and say that the statute law directs me to believe public authorities. The burden uh, or the, the presumption should be that I as a judge will believe what someone said if they are the state is what it comes down to. If you get higher up into proper, less fiddled with courts, at least in the English speaking countries, then they will dispense with that and say, prove everything that you've just claimed. Uh, that is the standard that's being lost. It goes all the way through to the international case uh, on the continent now um, uh, regarding coronavirus in some form, uh, which has, uh, I think, um, really faltered on this idea that the continental law of evidence is not there. So it has to be pursued in North America uh, because only a common law court will actually require people to prove all their claims rather than say, trust us with the government. Now, we didn't have to use, used to have this, the, the other kind of court in Britain, but at a local level, at a low level, that's the kind of court that you now have. You just need to turn up and say, we're the government and you've basically won the case. You're safe from perjuring yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what an interesting situation that is. Last point on this uh, is that uh, Danny, of course, also said uh, we need to be really aware of these types of courts, places of business, because this is the very court that is actually taking money from people in challenging council tax arrears. But uh, we'll go into that in more detail another time. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we are going to do a short uh, UK Column News Extra for uh, any of our members that want to stay uh, on the, in the chat box. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be back with you in about 10 minutes. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for all the support which has come in. It's, it's really wonderful and a big boost to us after what's been a pretty uh, tough year. Apologies really for the technical problems at the beginning. <laughs> We'll leave it there. Yeah. Bye-bye.